Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please turn to Amos chapter 3? We're carrying through our service, uh, our series in Amos chapter 3. That will be on page 765 or a large print on page 910. And it's 115, that's the whole chapter. Let's hear God's words to us. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out for his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Does a snare bring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant the prophets. The lion who roared has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Ah, Well, these are God's words to us. And would you please pick up your Bibles again and turn back to Amos chapter 3. It's a striking passage. Um, now I'm, I'm very thankful that I've, I've never lived through a war that's threatened our home turf. Um, some of you here might have done. Um, some of you might have lived through the, the Second World War as a, as a young person. And perhaps you heard the, um, for real the, the call of the air raid siren. 
I've only heard it on film or uh, in a war museum, but it's a, it's a haunting noise, isn't it? It's a fearful one and yet, and yet a life-saving one. It, it, it has that call to get to the bunkers, get to the shelters, find safety. And, and perhaps think of this next bit of Amos as an air raid siren. It's a man, in a sense, calling from the watchtowers of the city. An enemy is coming, find safety. Now, over the last two weeks, um, if you've been with us, we've seen that God, the lion, is roaring. The sins of the world and of his people uh, are before him. And now in this next section, chapters 3 to 5, in a sense, we're in court. Uh, we're in court and God is making his case. He's, he, you'll see time and again he gives evidence, he gives a verdict, uh, and he gives a punishment. And in this chapter, God's warning his people with the, uh, in court, in a sense, calling for action. It's a, an air raid siren. And you can see right from the start of chapter 3, uh, punishment is co- coming, verse 2. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Punishment. It's front and center. God and Amos, they're, they're unashamed of it. Now, for us, we can feel this is pretty difficult language, can't we? We, we? we kind of keep away from it. We use words like consequence. We use words like deterrent. But, but here, God is clear. Okay, that Iniquity, that sin, wickedness, wrongful acts, deserves retribution. But in what way? That's the question for us. What's actually going on in this all? Well, to see this rightly, we need to kind of build up the passage as Amos does. Although he shows us right from the start punishment is on the agenda, he puts it in an incredible context. Um, And so firstly, we're going to see God's covenant grace. That's the context for it all. And then we'll see how that cashes out. It cashes out in a purifying punishment and a loving warning. Okay, so firstly, covenant grace. That's verses 1 and 2. Now, let's read them again. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. These are two wonderful verses of covenant grace. God doesn't have an ordinary relationship with Israel. No, this, is, this one has a history Okay, Israel was lost in Egypt, if you know your Bible, under a foreign king, a foreign god, and enslaved. They were crying out for pain, and, and God goes in, like a, like a crack SAS squad behind enemy lines. He, he went in, he fought for them, and he rescued them. He even paid for them in blood, and he brought them to himself. Verse 2, you only have I known. This is a covenant word. Now, what's, what's covenant? It's the, it's the idea of God bringing, himself, uh, sorry, bringing his people into an official, close uh, relationship with him. That he's binding them to him and him to them. Here God speaks of them as a family. In a sense, that's what he's doing with them. They're being brought into his family. He called Israel his son. He loved Israel. No other nation has known this kind of love from God. Not the most giant, triumphant empires of history and not the, the smallest clans or the, uh, tribes or the island clans. You know, only this family was known by him like this. This family was his. They were made to be his vice-regents, his rulers of the world, ruling like him in justice, righteousness and love. And remember, it wasn't because of anything in them. 
They weren't great. They weren't good. They didn't deserve this. No, it just just flowed out of God's, out of his heart. He loved them, was loyal to them. He never went back on his promises. This is covenant grace. What an incredible relationship between God and his people. And the New Testament is clear. We've been engrafted into that covenant. Paul calls Gentiles, like you and me, a a wild olive shoot engrafted into the nourishing olive tree. That's the image. And that's because Israel's history was always wrapped up in what was to come in Jesus. It was always around him. That exodus from Egypt that that we have uh, in Amos, it was a shadow of Christ's redemptive exodus, rescuing his people from sin. We've we've seen it in Mark, haven't we? How Jesus shows his true people are those uh, surrounding him, sitting at his feet. God says of his church, God says of his church, only, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Isn't that wonderful? We've been showered with grace because we've been known by God. Peter the Apostle puts it like this in his, um, uh, in his letter, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're God's. We're his. And he is ours. It's like a video I've seen of um, a kid. He's receiving loads of birthday presents. And then his, his dad walks into the room. But his dad has been away on, on military service or something for months. And the, the kid just runs up and tears are flowing, mine as, as well as the kids. But, but it's because this is his best birthday present. Forget the rest, he's got his dad. That's what covenant grace is. We get God as our father. We're known by God and we know him. We're made sons with Jesus, his son, loved by God as, his, as the father loves the son. This is who God's people are. This is who we are, a family brought up out of the land of Egypt, known by God like no other. And it's only after this that the rest follows. Because here in verse 2, we have the absolute shock of this passage. Therefore, I will punish you. You know what? Surely, surely, therefore, I will lift you up. Therefore, I will affirm you. Therefore, I will comfort you. Now, we get those elsewhere in Scripture, but not here. Therefore, I will punish you. God's grace shown in, in punishment. How is that the case? Well, secondly, we need to see God's covenant grace, okay, means purifying punishment. It means purifying punishment. We're going to turn to kind of the third section of this chapter. We'll come back to the middle verses in a moment. But let's get to verses 9 to 15. Okay, 9 to 15. Here we've got three short oracles, they are, of what Israel has done and the judgment coming. Okay, so we've got verses 9 to 11, then verse 12 is the second, and then 13 to 15 is the third. And in this first one, verses 9 to 11, there in verse 11, we get this coming judgment. An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Then again in verse 12, the second one, we get this extraordinary picture of a rescue. Uh, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel. this, This isn't really a rescue, is it? The lamb's dead. It's been devoured. There's judgment, there's punishment here. 
And then the third, verses 13 to 15, verse 14 says that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. Right here, isn't it? It's a clear warning of punishment. And this is a, a warning of a foreign military power. At this point, they don't know which probably, but Assyria is looming. But it's coming. It's going to surround them. It's going to pull down their strongholds. It's going to obliterate the nation. It's going to destroy its altars. Now, why? Well, it's because God hates their sin. Just have a look at what's going on. Verse 9. Verse 9, Amos is to proclaim to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod's the city of the Philistines, the ancient enemy of, uh, of Israel, and also to Egypt. Now, these are horrific nations. Okay? They're oppressive, they're immoral, and yet they are being called to come and assemble. And the end of verse 9, what are they to see? To see the great tumults within her. That's Samaria, that's Israel. And the oppressed in her midst. Samaria was in such a horrific state even the Philistines and the Egyptians could come and be witnesses of it. And at its center was oppression. The weak pushed down so the elite could stay secure. In a sense, the church was comfortable while the poor and the weak and the marginalized were rotting in the gutter. It is oppressively secure. And then in verse 12, we get a hint of more sin. Do you notice all that's left of them, end of verse 12, is a corner of a couch and part of a bed. Okay, that's quite strange imagery, but I wonder if that's, it's summering, summing up what God's people are like. Okay, luxurious beds. Perhaps it's a hint of uh, lazy kind of sleepiness or more likely kind of sexual sensuality. Whatever it was, there was clearly a loss of holiness here. They're wrecking relationships and one another. And then verse 14, what's pulled down? It's the altars of Bethel. Now, we're going to see a lot more of these altars in later chapters, but, but these were new altars put up, not as God wanted. He just wanted one, and it started with one in Bethel, and then it started to spread more and more vain, idolatrous worship spreading through uh, the country. Again, uh, leading to extravagant wealth. You see, uh, uh, for some, there's people owning summer houses and winter houses. It's like having a, uh, a city house, a country house, a holiday house. They've got it all while leaving others in poverty. This is a, a oppressive security, a sensual indulgence, and idolatrous worship. This is why judgment is coming. God hates sin he's seeing in his people. Remember, he brought this people out of slavery as his son to be a blessing to the nations, to rule in righteousness. And instead of light, he sees darkness. Instead of purity, he sees filth. As one commentator puts it, that the nearer God places anyone to his own light, the more malignant is the choice of darkness. It's true, isn't it? These Israelites brought so close by God's covenant grace, had chosen such darkness. And it's wrecking them. It's making them less human, not more. You know, that, that, that's one of the most devastating things about sin, isn't it? When we, we do it, we think we're free. We think we're alive. We think we're more human. I can do what I want. And yet, actually, it makes us less human, doesn't it? Evil, beast-like. You know, the, the, the person who tears strips off someone with their sharp and violent tongue. The person who sleeps around with anyone they can more animal than, than man. And this is why God's bringing punishment. He's bringing a purifying punishment. Okay, and it has two aims. One, 
It's purifying God's people from the sources of their sin. Do you see that? Verse 10. Israel was storing up violence and robbery in their strongholds. In other words, these are places of wealth and prestige and power that have come through violence and robbery. That's what Samaria loves, strongholds. And then verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land, bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. What they held most dear was coming down. God in his love was showing them my punishment is going to target what's wrong. Verse 12, your, your love of sexual sensuality, I'm going to rip up your beds and your couches until only scraps are left. Verse 14, they've loved and made new altars, new places of false worship. And what's God going to do? The horns of the altar is going to be cut off and fall to the ground. God's punishment was going to purify them. He's going to target what's wrong about them. He's going to rip down their wickedness, their, their horrific oppression, their ugly sensuality, their vile idolatry. Why? To purify them. Their sin had to be got rid of. Amos is, is showing us God's, God's love is strange, yet incredible. He's saying a, a purifying punishment is coming. Your sin is so awful. It's so damaging. It's so opposite to who you are and who I've made you to be. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to purify you. Like a, like a fire purifying gold. Getting rid of the dross so that you, you gleam and shine. And that's coming through punishment. And the question for us is this. Do, do we believe... God loves his, us, his people. God loves us and our purity so much that he's willing, willing to punish or, and discipline us. That's what he's telling us here. You're the family I love. You only have I known. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Sometimes I wonder if we can just turn God into some kind of mush. His love is just affirming. He's like that kind of pet owner who, who always gives treats to their dog uh, whenever they ask for it. What my princess wants, my princess gets. We, we expect life, don't we, to just be plain sailing now as Christians. Life's just going to be a stairway to heaven, blessing after blessing. And I wonder if it comes down to a view of our sin. Perhaps we've, we've started to believe that our sin doesn't really matter. I'm saved. That's it. I'm heading for heaven. I can do what I like now. We know the glorious truth that Christ died for our sin, don't we? We've sung about it this morning. It's so important. The eternal wrath was taken for his people. And the cross, that cross sits over this passage. God's love, his covenant faithfulness is so strong, he even went to the cross to keep his people. You know, this punishment here should have obliterated the whole family. Verse 1, God says it's against the whole family, and yet as Christ died, what happened? Darkness fell. God's eternal wrath, his final judgment of his people, fell on their king on their behalf. Believers in the Old Testament, believers in the New Testament, we're free from the eternal torment of hell because of Jesus' death. It is a wonderful truth we hold on to. But knowing we're free from the penalty of sin means we can think we're free to do whatever we like. You know, like someone who hears all thieves are going to be pardoned, so they just go out around stealing. Just because they'll be pardoned, that doesn't mean, it doesn't make stealing right, does it? We've forgotten why Jesus had to die. It was for our sin. 
Sin is so serious, the eternal Son of God took on flesh so that he could die for us. God loves us so much that he's not only taking the penalty of sin, he's also working to purify us. Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. God is is working to make us more and more like Jesus. And he even uses punishment. Now this isn't eternal punishment, as we've said. Christ has taken it. Now the Bible calls this discipline. Think of it like a school being given a, a detention or at home. It's discipline. It's for your good. And God is willing to bring hard things into our lives so that we live differently. Whether it's personal difficulty, persecution or suffering. In his, his hands, he uses it. He uses it for our goods. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's purifying punishment. Do you believe God might do this? Are there things that you believe are so secure that you can happily trust them? God God will never get rid of that. I don't know, perhaps it's the large bank account. Your, Your health and your fitness. Your job, your lifestyle, your popularity. A successful ministry even. Now in themselves, obviously those aren't bad things, are they? But boy, can we start to believe and think they're the foundation of our life. We're happy with them. Without them, we'd worry. Without them, we'd feel nervous or lost. But see them as Amos sees them. They can be left in shreds, plundered in a moment. Not because God is vindictive, but because he's that willing to purify you. Surely if COVID has taught us anything, it's shown us this. So we need to hold on to God's gifts loosely. As Job says, God gives and God takes away. You know, as the Israelites heard that their strongholds could come down in a moment, their their trust in them should have evaporated. They should just hold on to them lightly, shouldn't they? And I, I wonder if the marker of someone who's doing this is thankfulness and generosity. A generous person knows what they have. They've been given and can be taken away in a moment, isn't it? Is that you? Is that me? They know God's covenant grace can mean purifying punishment. Now, it's, it's important just to say at this point, suffering is complex. Okay, we mustn't work backwards Just because God can use suffering as discipline doesn't mean all suffering is discipline, okay? Job is the big example of that, okay? He suffered, but he had done nothing wrong, okay? Suffering is much more complex than that in the hands of God. But here, in in what was going on, Amos is warning us that that type of suffering, that this type of suffering would be discipline, Okay, that there is a purifying form of punishment. But I said there were two ways of <laughs> purifying. Um, and the second, uh, we, we've seen he's purified God's people from the sources of sin. But he does also purify his people from those who won't repent. Not what, but who. Verse 12 is a horrific picture, isn't it? 
as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel. You know, this shepherd, he's getting to a lion too late, isn't he? Bits of lamb left, a bloodied leg here, a ripped ear there. Now, something is left, okay, but a lot is gone. There, there is a leg and an ear. And I, I wonder if Amos is hinting at a remnant here. Some will be saved, but actually many destroyed. Okay, and this isn't just an Old Testament teaching. Jesus speaks of this in his teaching of the vine. In John 15, he said this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There are some branches that look like the real deal. Okay? But actually, they're only for the fire, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. That's what was going on in, in Amos. A purifying judgment is coming on the community. Those who aren't really of God, who are rejecting him, will be cast aside. It is a terrifying vision, isn't it? This isn't light reading we've come for Sunday morning. God is making a pure people for himself. So if people don't want to be pure, if they don't want to be part of it, they will be cut off. Now this sounds stark, doesn't it? But remember, this, this is the pouring out of God's love for his people. He's making a people who have joy and delight in him. A people whose lives are of holiness and beauty. And if there are those who don't want it, he'll leave them out. And this is why this passage is here, because God's covenant grace, it means a purifying punishment, but it also means, uh, thirdly, a loving warning. A loving warning. Let's go back to the center of this passage. This is verses 3 to 8. Now, this is a tricksy little section. Okay, Amos moves into a, a series of questions. Just have a look at them. Okay, Notice how most of them are in pairs. Okay, Verse 4, we've got two about the li- a lion. Uh, verse 5, we've got a pair about snares and traps. Verse 6, we have a pairs about uh, a disaster coming on a city. And you notice these pairs have a similar theme. They're, they're saying things happen for a reason. Something happens because of something else. There's cause and effect. Okay, a lion roars. Why? Uh, because he's caught his prey. Okay, uh, a, a, trip, a trap springs up. Why? Because it's taken something. But these questions have loaded imagery, don't they? Okay, they're about lions getting prey. They're about birds getting trapped. They're about a city having destruction. This is about judgment coming. Culminates in verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer is no. The Lord has done it. In other words, this disaster that comes about uh, on Israel, this punishment coming, it's all in God's control. It's all in his hand. This isn't some historical accident God's right in the picture. He's doing something here. The lion will get his prey. Judgment is coming. But judgment hasn't come yet. Okay, that's really important. In a sense, the bomber planes are still over the channel. Okay, the Assyrians, they're still elsewhere. Something, something more is going on in this passage. It's, it's not just uh, information. Remember, these questions are in pairs. But not verse 3. Just have a look at verse 3. It's just one question. Now, what's going on is Amos is setting us up. Right at the beginning, he just throws in one question, but it never, you're never quite sure what it's doing there. Where, where is this going? It's confusing. Do, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Well, who are the two? What's he talking about? Is it, is it Israel and God? You know, Amos just kind of lets it sit there. He then goes on to these other pairs of questions, and then we get to verses 7 and 8. 
kind of leads us through it. And then verse 7 and 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, but who, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What's this about? It's about prophesying. It's about the prophet. This is about Amos and God, not Israel. That's who the two are in verse 3. This is God telling us something about his prophets. God has spoken, verse 8. So Amos must prophesy. What's this about? This is um, God declaring what's about to happen. Okay, Judgment is coming, so God declares it beforehand. God speaks, so Amos must prophesy. In other words, where there's judgment, there's warning. Where there's danger ahead, there's a sign. I saw a warning sign recently that said this. Okay, It said, warning, touching wires causes instant death, $200 fine. Okay? It's ridiculous, isn't it? But God's warning isn't like that. Okay, It's more like, think of it more like good parenting. Now, parents try to not just give out punishments without telling their child beforehand. Instead, they perhaps say, if you disobey me or if you do that, then this will happen. You know, you, I don't know, you'll lose your telly or something. There'll be a punishment. There's a loving but serious warning. That's what God is up to. The Lord has spoken, but who can but prophesy? And this has always been the way with God's people from Genesis to Revelation. Just think of the New Testament. Jesus himself speaks of hell and judgment far more than you'd expect to God's people. Just think of the sheep and the goats. Warning of eternal life and eternal punishment. Paul warns of judgment to God's people. The writer of Hebrews does. Peter does. James does. John does. Jude does. It's the lot. When judgment sits on the horizon, God speaks. And therefore his prophet speaks. And it's loving because it's a call to repent. God gives it in advance so you can do something about it. It's like an air raid siren. It comes before the bombs so you can get to a place of hiding. The prophet's warning has come so people can turn. They can t- come back to it the way the relationship was always meant to be. They were in a covenant. God is their father. They were his son. God is their king and them as his vice regents. And he was calling them back. Perhaps that's you this morning. You know you, you, you like... You look like part of the church, but in fact you're not near God. You, you might be baptized, a sign of God's grace. You might be at church. You might know your theology. But, but Jesus' cross doesn't save those who don't want it. It doesn't save those who don't trust him and repent. When, when Christ returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Some to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. God has testified. Heed the warning. Heed the warning. Come back to him. Because remember how God started this. This is out of covenantal grace to his people. He loves them. They are his. He is theirs. He wants his people to return to him. He wants you to heed the warning. Come back. Repent of your sin. Otherwise, there's no point of this warning. No point prophesying. God might as well visit uh, the punishment. But no. As, as As I said with the children, we are the sheep under his care. The air raid siren is wailing. Come back to God. Know his covenant grace. This grace that means purifying punishment, but also a loving warning. Amen.